Half of the stuff that goes on around me, I'm completely oblivious to. And the other half, I'm acutely aware. There's no middle ground. You guys been to the new Star Wars Disneyland adventure? I have not. No, we're in a pandemic. <laughs> Great. Well, that was riveting. <laughs> that ride opened up right before COVID hit, didn't it? Like a month, a month or so, yeah. So the people that have been on that ride are probably very rare breed. You're a rare breed. Thanks. We have a guest today. <laughs> <laughs> Who do we have with us today? Gob? Gabe? Bryce Reef, everybody. Reef. Hey. <laughs> Peef. Some call him Peef. I, I honestly didn't mean to say that. I was going to say Bryce. Brief. We'll just call him Brief. <laughs> Bryce, <laughs> Bryce works with us at the company that Gabe and I work at. The company? <laughs> so we all work together. Yeah, we all work at the same place. And uh, Bryce is probably the person I talk with Star Wars the most about in my life. And we're really happy to have him on today. He's the man. Say hi again. Happy to be here. Bryce, tell us one interesting thing about yourself. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> well, I brought myself to watch Rise of Skywalker again before wow. this podcast. That's, I think that's interesting enough. That must have taken a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Come on. We're just Can we verbal joust? Why don't you tell us something about your actual self outside of star wars uh something about myself i work at the same place as you guys <laughs> nice we're learning a lot about where you, you. Where, are you, where are you from uh, i'm from indiana i grew up there jones and i moved here to california about a year to ago work. to work here at the same place as uh, steven and gabe nice great now that we know about you <laughs> and what's this podcast about what are we doing today we're talking about a film that we that we all know <laughs> the Rise of Skywalker. Today we're doing a dive. We're not. It's not a short episode. One of the most controversial Star Wars movies of all time, I would say. In a string of yeah. controversial Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> this will hopefully be our last film from 2019 for a while. <laughs> I thought you were going to say last podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is about to ruin some careers. We're doing uh, Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker. The Rise of Skywalker. I thought it was just Rise of Skywalker. It is The Rise of Skywalker. (laughs) I had that written down, actually, and I just didn't read it. I would say it might be even more controversial than the prequels and more controversial than Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi. So Hard to do. We're going to figure out kind of why in this podcast. I think this film actually might have been less controversial than, than Last Jedi. What I mean by that is I think more people thought it was bad than The Last Jedi, which seems pretty much like a 50-50 split in general. I'm going to put a pause on I, Gabe. That's not... Right there. Yeah, okay. Because we're going to get into that later. I'm just saying what my impression of audience reaction has been. I might agree with that, but... Just in general. We're we're not even in the opinion part yet. I'm just thinking general reaction has been less polarizing in terms of a split. Yeah. General reaction. This is going to be a good podcast. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to get into why it's controversial later. But first, a little history. We need to get into the history for all of you listeners who don't know what Star Wars is. Can you believe there are people who haven't watched Star Wars? Yes. And we worked with some of them for a time before we had to let them go. (laughs) Yeah, so Bryce, (laughs) what is Star Wars? 
bit of a loaded question. Um, Star Wars is a saga of films. There's, what, there's like 11 now? There's 11 Star Wars films. Plus, there's a live-action TV show. There's been multiple animated shows. There's been just a compendium of books. I think that's a word. And there's... It is. Just all sorts of extraneous material. But Star Wars, what makes it differ from maybe other fandom-like things is that it's all sort of in the same universe. There's not, like, different versions of Star Wars, at least there was the way they're made now. The way I like to think of it is that this could actually be happening in a galaxy far, far away. And it's cool the original advertisements for the first Star Wars movie said something like that. And this could all be happening right now. What year was the first Star Wars movie made? 1977. And who was the original creator-director of that film? Uh, a guy named George Lucas. Handsome fella. A uh, handsome fella, great head of hair. He, yeah, he gave birth to Star Wars. Um, He wrote the first six movies and has had, I guess, input on all the recent stuff. But he was the sole owner and proprietor of Star Wars for many, many years, from 1977 all the way to 2012 2012. was when Disney purchased Lucasfilm and and all of its derivatives for $4 billion or something. Fun fact, related in a way, that was actually the year the world was supposed to end. Yeah, and in a way it did. Do the Mayan calendar. (laughs) (laughs) So to reiterate a little bit, Star Wars follows a hero's journey, the classic, essentially deals with a young boy named Luke Skywalker who dreams of leaving his home and is destined for something greater and eventually finds himself caught up fighting in a sort of space opera against a corrupted galactic empire. The character of Luke Skywalker is full of hope and over the course of the trilogy that he's in, even though he's tested, he always believes in what is good. He ascertains to something called the Force, which is a mystical power that is all around, and he desires to become a Jedi, which is somebody who can manipulate the Force. That's a very base description of what Star Wars is about, and it's important for what we're going to talk about in a second. Why do you guys think it's so popular? Um, I kind of think you said it a bit there, The Hero's Journey. It's from a book called The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell, and The Hero's Journey is basically a set of, I want to call them guidelines, but um, a set of things that happen in pretty much any major story you could think of not just fantasy but it's relatable in a lot of ways um, because it's sort of a familiar tale you know probably goes as far back as like greek mythology in the bible and other religious texts it puts a sort of reluctant hero at the forefront and they have to overcome a set number of obstacles and usually by the end of the hero's journey um, our character who sort of came from nothing almost every time think luke skywalker or frodo baggins from lord of the rings tend to end up in a sort of elevated state Um, oedipus as well from the oedipus trilogy sort of becomes deified in the end anakin skywalker also in star wars he starts off as a slave comes from nothing and through a series of huge accomplishments and massive dips when he becomes the main villain of the saga darth vader he's eventually redeemed in the end so that's sort of how the hero's journey tends to go obviously there's deviations but it's a really relatable thing and i think people like to see that triumph they like to see people that come from nothing that they can sort of see themselves in reach a higher state of being or whatever it is yeah i also think it created a universe much like jk rowling's harry potter that people can actually live in and it's ever expanding there's always new things happening Gabe, why do you think it's so popular? Regarding story structure and inspiration, I think you guys hit the nail on the head. As far as the sensation of Star Wars and why it was so explosive and popular for pop culture at the time, I think no one had ever seen that sort of movie before. 
out of film. We've had stories like that in the past, like you said, but to see it on the big screen, especially with that level of, at the time, technological advancement, like what they had with ships and lightsabers and all the practical effects, you know, it was a sensation. No one had ever really seen anything like that. So it mm -hmm. became sort of an icon or cornerstone, at least the one at that level of critical mass in pop culture. Yeah, it almost blended a modern take or modern for, you know, the 70s at the time on what it meant to be a human being at the time with a space opera, which made it, I think, more relatable, I guess, than the Star Trek or Doctor Who or Flash Gordon and stuff that came before it. And it's not just a sci-fi thing. At the core of it is the fantasy element, force. Yeah. The force is like this mystical thing that surrounds us and binds all living beings and <laughs> penetrates us. To quote a great man. To quote a great man. That's a Star Wars quote. I think people like to see, at least I like to see that combination of sci-fi and fantasy put so well together. And the force that's, I mean, we could equate that to any religion, to just spirituality in general, you know, a greater, a higher power. But yeah, just yeah. another reason why it was so relatable. And the characters as well. Everyone could see aspects of themselves and people like Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. And Why I like Star Wars is all of the above. And I like to look at Star Wars the same way I'd look at a piece of history. And that like you can pull apart any scene and you can see, you know, where that blaster was manufactured and the history of that manufacturing company back to the Clone Wars. I love to think about Star Wars in terms of like military history or something like that. So what I found on the web. <laughs> <laughs> Siri, search military For history. Military history. <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> what is this? One-handed mode. <laughs> I think, I think you make, make a lot of use out of that what mode. <laughs> yeah, I like Star Wars because it's all connected. Yeah, and um, it, they really did flesh that universe out, like you said, with the history and the context of mm -hmm. every little piece of machinery and whatnot in that universe over the course of 30, 40 years until Lucasfilm was bought out. And then in their own way, they kept building on it, but mm -hmm. they sort of started to veer away from what had already been made. Yep. Yep. <laughs> As Bryce said, it was originally created by a man named George Lucas. He's a very interesting fellow. It's very... Brilliant in, mind. In his head. Yeah. So famously, George Lucas's prequels were not that popular amongst fans when they first came out. But George had pretty much done what he could with the franchise and his creation. And he sold Star Wars, the IP, the intellectual property, to Disney in 2012. And then Disney announced immediately that they will be releasing more Star Wars films starting in December 2015. So we all got that great news that day, and then we had to wait three years to see what the new world of Star Wars would look like. They soon announced that a woman named Kathleen Kennedy, who alongside George Lucas had produced every other Star Wars film, would be in charge of the new venture and production of all the new Star Wars films. They announced the first one will be a sequel to Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, and then following that next December, would be a spin-off Star Wars film, then the next December would be the next sequel in the new trilogy, and then following the next December would be another spin-off film and so forth. It would just repeat, basically. A yearly release plan. Yeah, every December. Which was a good plan, was a good plan. I think Disney was trying to bank off the success of what Marvel was doing at the time. So they had to find a really good director for the first movie in the new trilogy, and they found that person in a man named J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams at the time was basically considered the next Spielberg. Everything he touched was basically gold. 
Mission Impossible 3. He went on to co-create Lost and then had a lot of success with the newer Star Trek films. And then Super 8, which was a straight-up homage to Spielberg and also a much exaggerated telling of his childhood. At the same time, they announced Ryan Johnson attached to direct the second in the new trilogy based off of his success as an indie filmmaker and directing multiple episodes of Breaking Bad. And then announced Colin Trevorrow as the director of the last film in the new trilogy based off of his success directing the first Jurassic World film. Ryan Johnson and Colin Trevorrow, Trevorrow, whatever, are important people and we'll be referring to them a lot probably throughout this podcast. So flash forward to December 2015, Star Wars Episode 7 entitled The Force Awakens comes out and is pretty much a smash hit, again directed by J.J. Abrams. This new film that launched a new trilogy follows a new force wielder named Rey who leaves the planet she was on and over the course of her trilogy battles her inner self to learn to do good and not evil. That's a very reductionist way of looking at it. The next year after that, a movie called Rogue One came out and was also a hit, directed by Gareth Edwards. The year after that, 2017, landed Ryan Johnson's Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. This was a critical success, but it split the fans because of the depiction of Luke Skywalker, taking the character they once knew and loved from the original trilogy, who was always hopeful, as I said earlier, and left him bitter and self-exiled on a planet. Ryan Johnson was also criticized for each of his plot points in writing, being criticized for changing the rules of the established universe, changing motives and arcs of beloved characters, creating cheesy moments, cheesy jokes, and even establishing unnecessary socio political themes to the film. Which is why for the critics, Ryan's unique voice breathed new life into the franchise as a step forward. But for the fans, it felt like he was dragging their hearts through the mud. The negativity left its mark and people are vocal on the internet. People began to question whether or not Disney knew what they were doing. A lot of doubt was cast, and it was announced during that time that Colin Trevorrow, Trevorrow was taken off the project and replaced with J.J. Abrams again who was not supposed to come back for the third film in the new trilogy, and decided to for his love of Star Wars and to finish what they had started. And the year after that, in 2018, came the disaster movie called Solo. Disaster film. Which a lot of us really like, I think. But it was not very well received. Um, it was not a critical or a fan success, and Disney lost a lot of money on it because they had to reshoot like 80% of the film. But because of this, they stopped making the spin-off films. And the next year, which was last year, 2019, we now get to Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. J.J. had a large task ahead of him in creating the movie. He not only had to summarize the trilogy that they started, but had to summarize the other two trilogies that came before this one, being a finale film for basically eight movies that came before it. J.J. tried to make up for some of the choices that Ryan Johnson made in the previous film. He attempted to course correct the character arcs according to what he had started in episode seven, all the while bringing in new characters, new ideas, new locations, and still attempting to make it feel fun like a Star Wars movie should. Because of this, this movie also came under much criticism. The critics thought of it as a step backward from what Ryan Johnson had done in trying to progress the Star Wars universe into a more relevant film that spoke to a new generation. The fans also criticized it for being too fanservice-y, too fast-paced trying to cram in too many events into one movie. And because of J.J. attempting to retroactively fix the continuity, known as retconning, to come to the aid and cry of the fans that did didn't like the character choices Ryan Johnson made, which in turn JJ was criticized for making this finale movie feel like it was not a satisfying ending to the trilogy that began with his episode 7. 
especially when it came to the characters, and all the while it being too puffed up and trying to do too much. That's basically where that leaves the Star Wars universe. Then Disney Plus was released, and then with the releasing of Disney Plus came this show called The Mandalorian, which also felt like a fresh take on Star Wars in a way that I think... Fresh in its familiarity. And was, I think, the right amount of fan serviceiness. It felt like, I think, what fans wanted Star Wars Episode 8 and 9 to feel like. And so I think a lot of people are putting hope now into the Star Wars live-action television series is. Siri? Siri? Or even the animated. But just overall, I think the, the TV series format has been more successful than the films. And I wonder if that's just a sign of the times or if, you know, or if Star Wars is better designed for that format now because of the expansive nature of the universe, like Bryce mentioned earlier, or if it's just how things turned out that the movies weren't as good as the show could be. And the better parts of Mandalorian specifically, or the Clone Wars too. That was a great summary. It's almost as if we had talked about many of these points prior and you put them into your summary there. The weekly discussion. Um, but no, that was really well put. That's that's basically everything that's happened it up is. to this point. Didn't George have ideas for a sequel trilogy? Yeah, he had at least like an outline written. And as soon as Disney purchased Lucasfilm, they told George to take a seat, right? <laughs> take a seat, Skywalker. George had been, he's been more involved with The Mandalorian, which I think why The Mandalorian is doing better as far as being successful. Yeah, the reception. Um, I think personally they should include George as, as far as just story points and stuff like that because he knows the universe so well. Him or Dave Filoni, who's... Kind of like George's son, spiritual successor. <laughs> and also, like, he's the... Is he the showrunner of Clone Wars? Yeah. He loves Star Wars. He came from cartooning background. He was working on The Last Airbender and then uh, was poached to make The Clone Wars. And he worked really closely with George, telling that story in the gap of The Clone Wars between episodes two and three. And now he's working on Mandalorian with Jon Favreau. Did he work on the first season? Yeah, very, very heavily. And everyone basically consults him as like the end-all, be-all encyclopedia of Star Wars knowledge. And hmm. people are saying that he should take over for Kathleen Kennedy. What? Oh, you were saying Dave Filoni. Okay. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think that'd be great. <laughs> there you go. And I don't necessarily think so much of what I may not like or what a lot of people may not like about the um, Disney Star Wars is necessarily Kathleen Kennedy's fault. I think it's, she's an easy scapegoat, but I think there's a lot of factors at play. A lot, of, a lot of ins, a lot of outs. A lot of ins, a lot of outs. Maybe it is her fault. I don't know. but I do think that it's half of it falls on her. I think she, she makes a lot of decisions that end up being what people end up seeing on screen. Well, I would also be curious to know if she was one of the people pushing for a yearly release schedule in terms of just churning content out at a high rate. I almost guarantee you that that was Disney. I'd say the monster blame then goes to the executives at Disney. And Kathleen Kennedy, similar to JJ, while they probably have, they're not innocent in all this, but they do get dealt a bad hand because of those decisions that were made behind closed doors, if that's fair. Yeah, I mean, does it really matter like who's What's, to blame? No, I mean, it, it, there's, I think it's a the sort of cursed production, maybe you could call it, of the sequel trilogy. What I mean is that it's due to a lot of problems, and it's not fair to just say this one person is responsible. Yeah. So but it's easy to take it all the way up the chain of command, and I would agree with you that probably a lot of it falls on the Disney side pushing for a yearly release schedule and just creating a lot of production hassle that didn't really need to be there for something that like most people would like 
a Star Wars thing, a Star Wars movie to be handled with the utmost care. And a lot of times you can't really do that in a forced release window. The reason I say that I think a lot of it falls on Kathleen Kennedy is because I think I think she controls a lot of the creative and even people with creative ideas, they will come to Kathleen Kennedy and because Disney put her in power, she can basically say yes or no to those creative ideas. So she essentially is the last person to say yes or no before we see it. And that's why I say I think a lot of it is more or less going through her. Um, I'm not at all trying to nix the fact that Disney had pressure and was putting pressure out there, but just as far as the actual creative choices, I think that Kathleen Kennedy was a big factor in that. Yeah. And she had this whole campaign that the force is female and she's really trying to bring in diversity, which... I didn't hear about that. What happened? (laughs) The force is female? She just, you know, the new Star Wars trilogy focused on a lead... Being a woman, a black man was the secondary lead. And then the third lead is a Guatemalan individual. And so Kathleen Kennedy and also Disney, I think, being an advocate for this, which, again, I I should just state that I'm not against that at all. I think it was a great choice. I love that they're all underrepresented leads. And, and so Kathleen Kennedy, to kind of say that we're going to keep doing this, she came out and said, someone came up with the slogan, but she was the face of it, the campaign of it, that the force is female and um, that we're going to continue to see more films directed by women, more women in these Star Wars films, television shows, etc. But the whole point of it is that you have the underrepresented people at the forefront. Yeah. Because of that, though, I personally, I think that Kathleen Kennedy, to me, she comes off as sort of a prideful person. And it's not that she's advocating for the wrong thing. She's advocating for the right thing. But I think she'd rather sacrifice good story points or good creative ideas for this agenda, this change. Yeah, I I get that. Um, Why I was saying I don't necessarily think Kathleen Kennedy is the one to blame solely is because there's also a lot of really good Star Wars right now. I mean, I am not a particularly big fan of the sequel trilogy, um, episodes 7, 8, and 9, but The Mandalorian, I think, was just fantastic. The last season of The Clone Wars show, fantastic. Star Wars Rebels, overall, a pretty solid show. And a lot of just amazing books and whatnot, too. But I would think that anything egregiously wrong with... um, the sequel trilogy probably comes down to the directors of the films or the committees that oversee the writing process for these films, which I, I mean, Kathleen Kennedy is certainly a part of that. But it is just a weird dichotomy to have like Star Wars to me that is just like so bad. And then some that's so, so good. Some of the best I've ever seen, um, even within films. Um, Last Jedi has some of the worst stuff I've ever seen in Star Wars, but also probably my favorite scene of all time, Yoda's Force Ghost scene. So it is not all bad right now. I was just going to echo what Bryce said in that I think most of the responsibility does lie with the directors over someone like Kathleen, because I think those story points that she approved and those characters, whatever they represented, specifically, you know, Ray, Poe, and Finn, I think there is an incredible story that could have been made with the tools that they were provided via Kathleen. So I think ultimately the execution falls on the heads of the director and whoever, whatever team he had assembled. Specifically with Rise, I think there could have been a more satisfying conclusion, if you can call it that, in those terms, with the yeses and nos that Kathleen had made. So J.J. Abrams then takes that and he makes a movie with it. I do agree the Mandalorian and the Clone Wars that stuff is great but I think that we also have really good creatives behind and in control of those things working with Kathleen Kennedy yes but also working with George Lucas on those things when for the films these the sequel trilogy films they threw out George's ideas 
Dave Filoni wasn't really involved. J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson were the people that were basically in charge there. And I think what John Favreau and Dave Filoni are doing are the more exciting things that are happening, like you were saying. So even though Kathleen Kennedy was basically in charge of both of those things, the sequel trilogy and the stuff that was on Disney Plus, I do think that maybe it was the relationship with J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson working with Kathleen Kennedy that made those films a little bit worse than the stuff that came out of Disney Plus. Basically what I'm saying. Yeah. And I do think the diversity push is great. Like I said earlier, I think it's something that should continue to happen. But I also think that one of the biggest complaints of the sequel trilogy is that Ray is overpowered and there's the word Mary Sue that's thrown around a lot that they just made her basically all powerful and she can beat everything and anything that comes her way and therefore there is no character flaw in her unlike Luke Skywalker in the original trilogy yeah and so people have been kind of upset that you know she's a little less relatable and so that's kind of what I'm saying I think that the story should drive the character development not the other way around and as long as we have a good story Star Wars is going to be okay but it shouldn't just be that because we have diversity and underrepresented casts in the lead roles that they can just do anything that they want and think that they're going to make good Star Wars. That's fair. That's always been the going rate with Star Wars. Uh, we should get into the film. The Rise of Skywalker. From this point on, we will be talking about the movie to a large extent. So here is your spoiler warning. I'm so curious, what was your guys' first impressions walking out of seeing it for the first time? And what do you guys think about it now? I think I saw it with you guys. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Opening we all night. saw it. Uh, I think I just said, I'm so tired. <laughs> it's exhausting. It is really. I think I remember like going into work, you know, the following days and talking about it with people who, who did like it. And I didn't want it to come off so negative. So I would just say, it was a lot. <laughs> and boy, is it a lot. You went into it blind, right, Bryce? Uh, no. Not, like, <laughs> physically blind? <laughs> no, I... That's, uh, that's something worth noting, that we all went into The Rise of Skywalker... Spoiled? ...having read every single thing that had spoiled, intentionally. Did we all? Yeah, we did, huh? I believe we all did, right? Yeah. I think up until the week before the release of The Rise of Skywalker, I was pretty set on going in pure. You know, virgin mind, virgin heart, virgin body... Uh, so to speak. As it is outside of Star Wars. <laughs> As it is. No, but I, I was tr I was hoping to go into it without having the spoilers, but there was so much negative feedback even before the film released that I decided I just, I couldn't wait anymore. So I started digging up spoilers in the, in the couple days before release. So I knew all the major plot points going into the film. Most of that through a negative lens, people were reacting. So I'm curious. I wish we had someone who went into a blind to see initial reaction. You also, in that case, have to account the that person, you know, who they are, their their own tastes, what they thought of the other two films. Bryce, your first reaction was, that was a lot. What was your first reaction? Gabe. My first reaction, which was just coming out of a film that I pretty much knew everything that was going to happen in, and reaffirming my initial take from the spoilers, which was largely disappointment, at a deeper level, but still the thrill of seeing Star Wars on the big screen by an, a director who is incredibly good on a technical level, to, to say the least. It was just a thrill. So I'm simultaneously kind of 
disappointed, but I'm also on the high. I'm coming off the mountaintop of like, I just saw Star Wars in a theater. This is incredible. So you liked a lot of the technical behind it and like yeah. the look of it and stuff. Basically. And what do you guys feel about it now? Largely the same. I had to rewatch it <laughs> a few nights ago to prepare for this. Just so I'd be able to speak to it a little bit more clearly. Mind you, when I asked Bryce to be on this podcast, he said, I never plan on watching that movie ever again. <laughs> after his first viewing, right? Because you had only seen it once, Bryce? No, I actually saw it the night after. I saw it with you guys, with another friend who's probably equally as jaded. Rewatching it again, though, my opinion didn't really change, but there are some parts of it that I like. I take that as a personal win. I feel similarly to Bryce. I said that for Steven. <laughs> <laughs> the more I reflect on the film in and of itself, but also in the context of Star Wars, I feel pretty much the same in that I wish it had been done differently in a lot of the story points, but it still is an incredibly fun film to be in, especially in a theater. I didn't really have fun. I will say that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I was sort of like waiting for it to... <laughs> to be over but <laughs> let me clarify that if i disconnect my what brain, is fun <laughs> yeah i mean fun in the sense that a pure spectacle if i'm just taking these set pieces just for what they are which is this is a lightsaber fight oh this is a cute scene with c-3po and babu frick i can enjoy those those small moments and the ingenuity and cleverness of some of these exciting characters but overall as a film i'm just deeply saddened so <laughs> you're saddened by the choices that J.J. Abrams made or the way that it played out? What are you most saddened by? The thing that I'm most disappointed with is the story that just was flying through it so fast that it's difficult to discern what's happening. I don't know if the characters even knew what was happening. <laughs> are you sure you're not more saddened by the pacing and the editing of it? I think a lot of those things stem from the pacing of the film. I didn't have time to enjoy a lot of the moments of the film because it was so frenetic and fast-paced and it was constantly slamming into the next scene. But also, ignoring that, this story didn't feel as satisfying in terms of character arcs, character motivations. It felt like there's not a lot of substance and it's just a lot of spectacle. For instance, Finn is just sort of an accomplice to the crime. There's not a lot of agency and there's not a lot of character development and you can't really track what's happening there's so many new things, new tools being introduced. Characters are constantly dying and being revived, and there's no sense of consequence. And even in moments of grief, there's no way to really hold in that emotion and just kind of sit with it for a moment and watch how it affects the characters. For instance, the death of Chewbacca, we see Rey initially react to it, and then that doesn't really have time to weigh on her. And that should be something that she wrestles with for a while over the course of the film. And I felt like that throughout pretty much every moment of the film. This scene should be sort of expanded and drawn out. This is something that I've come to realize happens in a lot of J.J. Abrams films. Like I said, I think he's an extremely competent technical director. And there's always something exciting going on in a J.J. Abrams film on the screen. It's very dynamic, very action-packed. But he doesn't give these scenes a lot of time to breathe. Sometimes in the middle of a scene, it'll instantly slam into the next scene. There's always action happening, driving the plot forward. So you don't really have a lot of time for these characters to develop and really explore their own motivations. It's just constant thing happening after thing happening. Yeah, I would say pretty much every problem stems from trying to put so much into one film. And I think that's something that is sourced in the writing. 
but is compounded in pacing and editing. Yeah, I think J.J. Abrams was given a Herculean task of wrapping all this up. He had sort of planted some seeds in The Force Awakens for what his possible trilogy would look like. But then Episode Eight came along and subverted expectations in all sorts of ways. Some landed, some didn't. And in a lot of ways, it didn't really build off of what Episode Seven had left. So then J.J. was torn between like, well, I have these pieces from Episode Eight to build off of, which a lot of people didn't like, but a lot of people liked the pieces from Episode Seven. So I'm just going to take those, take a little bit from Episode Eight here, some of the stuff that people like, and all the while be really concerned about the final product. So they just resort to these fan service elements they shoehorn a lot of that stuff in there to hope that people latch onto that stuff rather than the shoddy storytelling but the story i don't love it but i don't really ever even think about that when i think about why i don't like rise of skywalker so if you don't think about the story what do you think it is that makes it not a fun watch for you well there's definitely story elements that i don't like but again that doesn't bother me too much it's the fact that it seems like the first Star Wars movie ever that is completely aware of itself. It's almost as if Star Wars is a famous movie saga in the Star Wars universe. Every time there's a reference to something from a past Star Wars movie, and there's a lot of them, it just lingers a little bit too long. There's a scene when Rey is walking through the the ruins of the Death Star, and it shows her just walking around a corner, but then the camera sort of just lingers down. In a movie where there's no breathing room whatsoever, they spend a little too much time letting the camera linger down and shift focus onto the, the classic Stormtrooper helmet. Like, hey, hey, look at this. We got the old guys back. You see, hey, you, hey, like, you like the old Stormtrooper helmets. Like we got it. We got it right here. Oh, and remember? Remember the time when, when uh, Yoda lifted the lifted the, the X-Wing out of the out of the swamp? We got that one, too. We got that again. <laughs> We're going to show the whole damn thing, the whole scene. Again, the same thing you've already seen. There was a lot of that. That's at the expense of world building, particularly in the case of uh, Kylo Ren. I guess he's been solo at this point. Towards the end of the movie, he lands on the bad guy planet with all the lightning. <laughs> Exegol. Exegol. Yes. The bad guy. So, <laughs> with lots of lightning. I was like, you know better than that. That was a joke. The, that was a joke. The smoke, the smoke planet. <laughs> so Ben Solo lands on the on Exegol in a one of the classic TIE fighters. And like you're sitting there in the audience thinking, man, so cool to see one of the classics again. I love seeing these things. But me, I stop and think, well, hey, doesn't a Tylen Starfighter not have a hyperdrive? <gasps> no, Star Wars, it doesn't. I know that's such a stupid, silly, minute point, but I think it's telling of a general, like, disregard. Disregard for the universe that's already there. I'm fine with fan service. I really liked it in The Force Awakens when we see the Millennium Falcon for the first time, when we see Han Solo for the first time. Those are great moments, in, especially in a movie that's revitalizing the entire franchise. But it did not really need to happen in this one. Like, we're in it at this point. It's a third movie of the trilogy. The final film of the Skywalker saga. The entire movie depends upon the fact that we know who the Skywalkers are outside of the Star Wars context. I mean, the crux of the whole sequel trilogy is Rey figuring out who she is. In The Last Jedi, it's revealed that her parents were no one. They were of no consequence in the greater scheme of the universe. And that's a really hard thing for Rey to grapple with. And then at the end of that movie, we see this this random unnamed boy use the force on a broom 
looking up at the stars. And no, we're not going to get a movie about that kid. We're not ever going to see him again. I love unnamed boys. (laughs) But but what that meant and what the whole point of Last Jedi was, the Force doesn't really belong to just the Skywalkers. It belongs to everybody. It could belong to Rey, and it could belong to you, little girl, watching this movie right now, looking at Rey, who also came from nothing and doesn't have a special last name. And for not liking The Last Jedi much, I love the thesis of it. But then Rise of Skywalker comes in like, that is so interesting. All that stuff you just said, actually, maybe, what if we just didn't follow any of that and say, hey... You actually need to have the last name Skywalker to be of any importance And also at all. Palpatine. You also need to have the last name Palpatine. And maybe that's why they didn't give Finn or Rose anything to do, because they don't have important last names. And they made Rey take the Skywalker name at the end. Nothing about that was cool to me, her taking that. I just thought it was so, so unnecessary. Like I said, it felt like, feels like Star Wars is aware of itself, and that it sort of just gives you a big old wink. I hear what you're saying, and I also hear what you're saying. Thank you also, Bryce, for watching the movie again. (laughs) Because I think that there's a lot of redeeming moments in this film, and although it's not perfect, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it first coming out of the film, I remember thinking that might be my favorite Star Wars movie I've ever seen, which as someone that has the Death Star tattooed on their arm and loves all the Star Wars films, some more than others, obviously, but I really, really enjoyed this film. I thought it was extremely fun. And my first impression coming out of the theater was that I was like, that was just like a fun movie. And I think that speaks to the quality of a filmmaker like J.J. Abrams, like you were describing earlier, Gabe. Um, all of your points are valid. And I see all the same things. It's not like I'm not seeing those problems. I could argue each of them. I can play devil's advocate, but it's it's really just Steven's advocate because I think... Because Steven is the devil? <laughs> <laughs> no, because I see that differently. I see the points differently. Let's go back. Because you keep saying the story and the character development and all that jazz, but I actually don't think it's a writing issue. The second time I watched the film was about a week and a half ago in my home thanks to COVID and Disney Plus. And I was watching it, thinking the whole time, looking for plot holes. And there was only one that I found. And it was, how did Ray and the other characters know to stand on the edge of the cliff and look at the dagger from that perspective and where the, the wayfinder would be? That's the only plot hole I could think of. Everything else, as far as character development and characters going from one place to another and characters having things to do, they're all completely sound. And from a structuring standpoint and a writing standpoint, they are actually extremely locked in and make perfect sense. Even going from one planet to another and why do we have to go to this planet? Why do we have to go to this planet? Why do we have to go over here? Why does Rey not spend more time grieving over Chewbacca? Why does she not spend more time grieving over Ben Solo's death? It's because there are other things that are happening that are actually making it so that she is unable to grieve how she should, which plays into the whole point of this film, which is her dealing with her dark side, which I think in what I know about evil and darkness, it's that you lack empathy and compassion and sympathy for others. Not to say that when Chewbacca died, Rey screamed out. I think it was the only time she screamed in the film, like bloody murder kind of scream. 
and then had to move on because she also was dealing with the realization that she had this power that she didn't know that she had. And then when Ben died, the whole place was crumbling around her, so she had a GTFO. So I, I do think that from a writing and structural standpoint, that this film is actually very sound, except for that stupid moment on the cliff. I think the editing was the thing that did this movie in, and I blame Disney for that. I actually don't blame Kathleen Kennedy for that. And here's why. Up until about a month to three weeks before this film came out, this movie all over had the runtime as being the longest Star Wars movie out of all nine of the Skywalker Saga films. It was like almost basically three hours long. And then three to four weeks before the film came out, Disney had J.J. Abrams and the editor cut that movie down to a more reasonable and fast-paced film so that it could just be enjoyable and, in my opinion, more brainless. And I think that's why like a lot of what you guys are saying as far as not having moments not getting enough time to think about the ramifications of the actions of the characters is because of the editing. I mean, studios are always trying to get films to be shorter and shorter because they make more money when a movie's shorter because people don't want to sit in a movie for three hours. So actually, people buy less tickets to films that are longer. That's why Blade Runner 2049 failed at yeah. the box office. When people literally look at the runtime, they go, Oh, I heard this is supposed to be good. Oh, it's two hours and 50 minutes. I'm not going to see that. The age like, of low attention span. Yeah. And so this Star Wars movie, albeit I think was good, it's also a product of the time. And the time right now that we live in is, like you said, a short attention span and people coming from Vine going into TikTok and not being able to watch something past 30 seconds on YouTube. It's crazy. And I think because Star Wars ultimately is for young people and kids a lot of that demographic that Disney is appealing to because remember ultimately their goal is to get people to come to Disneyland and go to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge that was the goal of this movie ultimately <laughs> is 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 and it is with everything this has nothing to do with Star Wars but when you look at the Marvel and Sony contract when they split Spider-Man up basically Sony got all the ticket sales most of the ticket sales i think it was like 80 to 90% of the ticket sales and Marvel just got all the merchandising because they make more money on merchandising than they do on the ticket sales of the actual film. And so Star Wars, Disney's not done. They know like the money's in the merchandising. The money's in people spending money to go to Disneyland and go to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Which, by the way, is based off of this new trilogy. It's Resistance versus First Order. It's not the original trilogy, which was the Rebels versus the Empire. It's the new logos. The whole world is based in the, and set in the new reality that Disney has created which I think is a detriment, honestly, to the success of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. But anyway, the point is, I think this film was made to be a money-making movie. But I also think at the same time, Disney always wants to make something good. They always want to make good films, good Pixar movies, good princess films, whatever it is. And, they, and so they put good creative people in charge because not only do they want to make money, they want to make it good. And they put the hope of the new generation, like the next Spielberg, J.J. Abrams, in charge of these. I wonder if they had really planned out the story for this trilogy from the beginning. J.J. and Kathleen sat down and planned out a story for all three of the films. They executed it with the first film. They gave it to Ryan Johnson, but they also gave Ryan Johnson creative freedom and so ryan johnson was like eh, i'm gonna do my own thing so he threw that out and then he wrote basically his own thing and it was approved by disney they thought it was risky and they loved what he was doing and famously mark hamill just hated every decision that he made that's crazy to do inside of a tight trilogy You're right but but that's because they always had colin trevorrow 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 
This is Whatever. my favorite bit. <laughs> I, I suck at this. Uh, they had him writing the ninth movie, which they actually put the script out recently. It's called Duel of the Fates, and it's pretty awesome, actually. It might have been a more satisfying sequel than the one that we got. But before he got kicked off, he was writing the sequel to Ryan Johnson's film, and it was it actually felt like a good ending to this new trilogy instead of an ending to this new trilogy plus an homage to all the other six films that came before this new trilogy. But my whole point is that I think there were a lot of things working against this film. And for what it is and what J.J. did with it, I think it's awesome. And I think it's extremely fun. And it's something I want to watch over and over again. If I picked it apart, if you watched just one scene on YouTube, you might be like, that looks like a horrible fan film. Because it makes no sense. And it's completely out of context and just sort of stupid. But watching the whole movie from start to finish, it's actually a really fun ride, and that's why I liked it. Because in the end of the day, from a movie, I'm still looking at movies for entertainment, and I also love to look at them for art. I feel like in my mind, I can kind of separate the difference. Like, I know when I'm seeing an artful movie that I'm going to get something really interesting and philosophical and something I can criticize. But I know going into a Star Wars film, all I'm looking for really at the end of the day is to be entertained. And I've said this about Marvel films before, like I love Marvel and comic books and the universe that they've created, but they're not masterpieces in the sense of like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or The Shining or something along those lines. Jack Nicholson only. So yeah, I liked The Rise of Skywalker. I thought also the introduction to new characters like Babu Frick and Zori Bliss, I thought were great characters that I would love to see more of in the future. I don't know the, the name of the girl that also was... Lando's Child? Yeah, Lando's child who meets up with Finn. I love what they were doing with Finn in this movie. I know you guys were saying that he didn't do anything, but they made him Force-sensitive. In the movie, they have this bit where he's like, I need to tell you something, Ray." And then Pose, I was like, what were you going to tell her? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. I don't really want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it with Daisy, with Ray." And what they said later was that he was going to tell her that he's Force-sensitive. And in the end of the movie, he basically says it where he has a quote-unquote feeling. That's a good example where I think that this kind of felt like two films. Finn being Force-sensitive is something that could have been better explored if this really was two films instead of one. Mm -hmm. If we had somehow laid groundwork for that in previous films. This is my other big point when I was listening to you guys talk. There's a suspension of belief with any fantasy film that you watch. That's true. Where you have to just accept the thing that's happening on screen. And I heard this argument when it came to people arguing for The Last Jedi and some of the stuff. The new force powers, so to speak, like force projection and flying in, out of space like Leia does and stuff. That people were arguing like, well, that, that never happens. Like, you can't just create force powers. And I think Ryan Johnson's response was, when you see Empire Strikes Back for the first time and... Luke is in the ice cave and he's trapped and then he reaches out for the lightsaber and the lightsaber starts to move just a little bit and your mind just goes, oh, oh my gosh, the force can like make things move. Oh, that's so cool. And you have to accept that. But the problem is, is that there's been 20 something plus years between these films where people have just been jerking off these films for 20 plus years. And so now they think that that's all that there is. It's like you're watching the same porn over and over again. And now that there's like a new porn, it's like, oh, I want the old one. It's like, well, <laughs> do you? Or is it because you're psychologically trained to only like this one thing and you can't accept something new? So all the force stuff, like the force powers, the new things that were introduced in these films, I really, really liked that stuff. I remember walking out of The Last Jedi thinking when 
they talk in the old the original trilogy that the force and the things you can do as a jedi are like more powerful than you could ever like dream of there's a line i'm, I'm totally botching it and misquoting it completely but i always imagined when i was a kid what would it be like to do these really cool things like what are these other cool things that you can do as a jedi and when he force projects essentially across multiple planets trillions of light years away and he shows up and he's able to have a lightsaber battle it blew my mind in the sense of like this was the thing that i used to dream of as a kid of like how cool it would be to be a jedi and like do things that you couldn't even imagine it's like all the cosmic things started aligning for but me but you can only do those things if your last name is skywalker remember that's not true the most powerful family because ray's last name wasn't skywalker but she does take it. She takes that, but it's because she identified with the family of Skywalker, not just with Luke and Leia, who were the people training her, but also with Ben Solo, who is also sort of a Skywalker. And she rejected her family of origin, which was Palpatine, which was essentially evil. So she, it wasn't so much the name of Skywalker, I think, as her just embodying what it means to be good. That's why she takes it. I don't think it actually has anything to do with the name of Skywalker. There was a rumor going around before this movie came out that the name of Skywalker was actually going to become like a metaphor and it was going to replace what Jedi actually is. But she could have been all that still if she was just Rey. True, but I think it's her way of having a family when she has no more family. And her whole character arc throughout the three films, and again, I know it was retconned twice, but it was her seeking identity and her trying to figure out who she was. And she identified most with these characters. And yes, it's Skywalkers. Like, yes, it's the good guys. But it was always going to be the good guys. We knew that going into watching a Star Wars movie. It wasn't called Revenge of the Sith. It was called Rise of Skywalker. (laughs) (laughs) All that to say, all in all, I liked all the new things that were in this new trilogy. Did you like the Emperor coming back? I did. I should say this too, that specifically with Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker, I would have done them differently. I would have made slightly different choices that would have led the characters to different paths. I liked a lot of what they did, but ultimately I feel like I have to accept it for what it is, otherwise I'm just going to hate it. And I'm never going to watch those films. I feel like you can choose. (laughs) You can pick and choose when you watch a film. That's what they call guilty pleasure movies. These are kind of I live for the day when spectacle like Star Wars or Marvel can coincide and live symbiotically with art. I think Marvel is there sometimes. Like, they sometimes do it well. Yeah, but there's still so much formula. And that's one of the reasons that I was initially so dissatisfied with the sequel trilogy. Not only was it derivative so much of itself, of past Star Wars, but also every big box office IP, most of them anyway, feels so Marvel these days. There's quick quips and jokes Yes, yeah. certainly. The sequel trilogy. And the great example of that hey, in Rise the way, of Skywalker. They fly now. They do fly now. That was, but a great example of that in Rise of Skywalker is, is C-3PO. He was so fun, but it's C-3PO. like, it's just joke city for that guy. It was just, it was cute quip he, after cute he quip. He was sort of like that in the prequel films too. But it wasn't overdone. I don't remember him ever saying a line that really mattered though. And even in the original trilogy, he was the joke telling, yeah. even in Empire Strikes Back, He's always in the way, and that's what makes him so charming, I guess. I think that's C-3PO's character. Did it not feel like really ham-fist, ham like that? Yeah, exactly. Um, it felt like that. I totally see that. I see you, and I hear you. But C-3PO did have a great moment. Do you when, speak Sith? I speak Sith, by the way. <laughs> he had a great moment there. He says he's got to erase his memory, and then he turns around and Poe's like, hey, what, what are you doing? He's like, taking one last look, sir. 
Had my friends. Had my friends. And I didn't like that at first because I wanted to not like it, but watching it again, I was like, that's actually, that's really nice, like, to give C-3PO that. But I do think that it didn't matter because he did get his memory wiped, but he only gets it restored just about 30 minutes later, maybe. And back to that point, you don't get much time to breathe on anything like Chewbacca's death, for instance. I looked at the timestamps from when the transport blew up to when you see him again. And when, when I first saw the film, I was like complaining about that and saying like, oh, you only get like five minutes to deal with his death. It's actually two. You get two minutes. Two minutes? After that, for some reason, you get a scene where all the main characters are like about to take the jump into the final battle. They all hold hands and they say, for Chewbacca. The audience all knows at this point that Chewbacca's alive. I totally agree with you on the point that the movie's so fast paced and so much happens because Disney probably wanted to cut it down. But I think that maybe they wrote themselves into a lot of holes. They sort of over-explain to the point of, like, that you forget what's going on. They have to find a MacGuffin, a wayfinder, to find the next MacGuffin. Or no. No, no, no. They find a dagger that they can't read, so they use the MacGuffin of C-3PO's brain to then find the wayfinder thing i don't know i'm talking in circles but weren't there two wayfinders they thought there was one but then there was another one the two wayfinder thing it played into the story though because kylo had the one he knew where exegol was ray's whole purpose up to the midway point of the film was to find the second one so she could also get to exegol kylo meets her there immediately smashes it in front of her and says the only way you're leaving here is with me and so that made it so that they have to duel Otherwise, the plot can't move forward. And that was, that's amazing writing. How did you guys feel about the Knights of Ren? Who? <laughs> that was another joke. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know if it's worth talking about. Like, they were only put in there because there was a shot of them in Force Awakens. They really didn't need to be there Boy band just track album shot. I thought the Knights of Ren actually had more to do than the bounty hunters did in episode five. Hot take functionally really similar though yeah when the bounty hunters show up in episode five i think it's like one shot when i first watched the movie when i was a kid i didn't even notice that that scene happened i didn't know who bosk or ig88 or boba fett i didn't know any of those were dengar is another one right you have to get four lom yeah oh yeah so that didn't even know that scene happened until like you start seeing toys and like now who is that and you're like yeah. he's from episode, like Empire Strikes yeah. Back in that one scene so I think the Knights of Ren played a similar role here where they did have a task and the task was to have a really cool fight scene with Ben Solo but the the bounty hunters in 5 that one was longer though that's what she said it is what she said. The Bounty Hunters in 5, though, it was just a little thing of world building, something that exists in the background that didn't really matter, ultimately. But Knights of Ren had three films, two and a half, two films, however you want to measure it. It had multiple films worth of build-up. And they were very important characters in the story because of their association with Kylo versus those one-off Bounty Hunters, that it felt like a fart in the wind when nothing happened. And also the relationship they had with Kylo. Yeah what was that supposed to even be? Because he yeah, just, I mean, he, just he's in, he kills them in a two them. minute scene. Yeah. And there's no remorse there. I mean, I know I, like, like I said, I'm not asking for really much. I would have taken a single spoken line. I would have taken reason. a single spoken line, just maybe some kind of, Oh, Kylo, you're good. You're Ben now. And then, okay, yeah. sure. <laughs> I think we've hit this before in various ways, but that plays into the fact that a lot of stuff happens in this movie, but a lot of stuff happens that like by any metric is astronomical like the stakes are so 
unbelievably high and you never really understand that like does anybody know that the movie takes place in like 16 hours 12 hours or something and they go to like the most planets of any star wars movie that's uh, beside the point but then at the end of the movie we see one million star destroyers every ship in the the world and then you see (laughs) you see every single ship that exists in the galaxy on one planet and by contrast the trench run from episode four there's like 10 ships and it's just so much more captivating. And that's just me being like a, a fanboy, you know. But I think by a lot of metrics, it's just so much more captivating because you're able to actually focus on what's going on. And you know the stakes are high and there's a payoff to that. But the stakes are so unbelievably high here that like you think there's no possible way they could win within the context of the world. But then they end up winning anyways, because obviously they're the good guys. Because the emperor but, once again died to his own lightning. Yeah, that's another plot hole which I can talk about. In the beginning of Rise of Skywalker, they talk about how they put out the distress signal in episode 8 and nobody came. And the stakes in episode 9 of The Rise of Skywalker were always high for the whole film because you only had this many of the, not the rebels, the resistance left. And therefore the whole film... And then especially when more and more people die, you keep thinking, how are they going to win? And so I think the stakes are really high by the end. And I felt it like when there's that moment with Poe fighting and all of his fellow starfighters are essentially dying around him. And he has this moment where he kind of gives up hope and he's like, I think we should retreat. I think we should get the heck out of here. And then Lando shows up with everyone and... uh, That moment was really nice. I thought that everything in the movie built to that moment, they were casting doubt throughout the whole film that people might not show up to help you because essentially what we stand for is just a band of rebels getting together to fight this. this, Yeah, exactly. But that was the, the (laughs) that was this, the battle from eight. Right. And in that movie, no one did show up except Luke, but with the rest of the universe did not show up. And I'm curious, I don't even remember how they actually got the universe to show up in 9. Lando somehow just convinces everyone to show up because he's Lando and he has charisma 100. They put out a distress signal again. But this time it worked? Yeah. When Leia dies, they put out that signal that Leia's dead, Luke's dead. I forgot Leia died. That should that should do the opposite of inspire confidence. We need help. No, no, it's 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 basically they rallied around the fact that it's for Leia. It's for the Skywalkers. And that was another great I think genius move in the writing to have everyone who has ever fought or believed in the resistance and whatsoever to show up and and fight, you know, to the death essentially. I really liked that. Yeah, I wish I like remembered why a lot of these things happened in the film though. And and there's just so much that happens that I forget it all. Leia sacrifices herself so that her son can live, so that in the end it can either be Rey or her son that can live. Because it's established early on in Episode Nine that how Rey heals people through the Force is by a transference of power, right? by a transference of transference life. Transference of And so Leia lays down so that essentially she lays down. <laughs> I love praise. She lays down so that when Rey gives into her dark side and stabs Kylo through the chest, she uses Leia's power, Leia's life force to give to Kylo to basically resurrect him. And then for the rest of the film, he essentially is physically and spiritually, he is now sustained by his mom until the end when Rave dies and then Ben gives up his life and then also in suit his mom's life 
who is also Ray's mentor for her life. And so she she kind of, in a way, physically, metaphysically, becomes a Skywalker in that way as well. There's another point. I bet Anakin was pissed when he saw that. It's like, damn, you can actually save people <laughs> through the light side <laughs> yeah. wait i didn't have to you I mean didn't, i didn't i didn't have to I, turn I, evil <laughs> my god palpatine closing thoughts it's been two hours has it really it's been two hours i feel like we didn't even talk about the movie <laughs> <laughs> but we probably did i think time i'm curious to see if this movie will age well or rather this fr- uh, this sequel or trilogy i think know. in 2050 it'll be the only movie that the children <laughs> of 2050 We'll be able to Once watch Disney owns the world. Quick everything oh, happens. my daily screening of Rise of Skywalker is coming up. Hold on, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, Joffrey. <laughs> you <Yeah>. mad? <laughs> we are all British in the future. Yeah, overall, this trilogy, there's a lot to love and to take away from at the end of the day. But um, there's a lot to hate, too. And hate leads to the dark side. So hopefully you don't give in to it. <laughs> I'm kidding. And then to death. Yeah, eventually to death. <laughs> Shuffering. Oh, my God. There's a lot of heart and substance, I think, that we can take away from if you just try to look at the better parts of it. Believing in who you are and trying to overcome adversity and I don't know. There's still a heart there. There you go. That's the spirit. I like to hear that. From that's my that's my better half speaking. Ye, ye old Gabe. Ye old Gabe. You talk about a movie. Rise of Skywalker's a good movie. <laughs> I'm excited to see the future of not just this Star Wars universe, but if they ever pick up these characters again. I look forward to seeing a golden lightsaber being wielded by this omnipotent being. Who you think is very attractive. Daisy Ridley's great. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Daisy Ridley. Oh, I was going to say, I don't ever remember Poe holding a golden lightsaber. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he should have been a Jedi too. Yeah, Everyone's yeah. force sensitive, so. It's... Yeah, apparently Finn is. Finn should, in future content, it'd be cool if he developed into some sort of a... Wouldn't that be cool if that <laughs> happened in the trilogy? He <laughs> was he... the main character in? Yeah, closing thoughts... I have really no interest in like and in watching it again and I'm again I'm okay with I'm okay with that. I'm totally cool with that. I really I think it's great that like Steven you like it a lot and you can see the same things but just those aren't as big them. of a deal to you and that's yeah. great. I see those and I'd rather just watch the Clone Wars. I'd rather just die. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'd rather just watch Mandalorian and um and I can do that because we live in a time. I'd when rather watch the beginning and end of Mandalorian. When there's a Star Wars show going on and there's multiple Star Wars movies in the works. And that's really cool. Rise of Skywalker certainly doesn't make me excited about the future of Star Wars at all. But the other Star Wars stuff happening right now does. And yeah, I can appreciate the a lot of the Force stuff that you were saying, Stephen, in this movie. Thank you. Um, I, I do like that a lot. I think C-3PO in this movie, this was his movie. He was absolutely hilarious and had some great one-liners in there. And Babu Frick, amazing. But as a whole, I just I just don't like it, and I'm okay with that. Well, I don't have anything to say. I think I said everything I wanted to say. I Actually, I will say, Clone Wars is great. <laughs> we, should, we, have, we don't talk about that enough. Bryce made me a um, an essentials list to watch through the animated series. It's, it's like seven seasons long, and some of it is... It's it's hard, it's difficult to get there. Very childish, but some of it might be actually the best Star Wars we've ever seen Aye. to date. And and Bryce and I talk about that a lot. Gabe's too weak to have time to see it. I'm too weak. 
<laughs> but if any of you guys want that essentials list, hit us up and we'll try to get it to you. But I'm really happy we had this conversation and yeah. it's recorded. I thank you guys for being here and uh, I look forward to working with you still at the place that we work. Yeah, likewise. And um, again, I don't want you guys to forget the most important thing. A dyad in the force. They fly now. They fly now? They fly now? (laughs) They fly now. They fly now. What is wrong with that line? I don't get... I like that line. I would like to say a quick thank you to John Williams for his beautiful last Star Wars score he's ever going to write and for allowing us to use his music on this podcast. So, uh, Warner Brothers greenlit the Snyder Cut. I know you're looking forward to that, Brief. Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) What's your name? Uh, Yeah. So no one thought that was actually real, right? Yeah. It feels basically, unreal. Like, it seems such an impossibility that this something like this would ever happen, that yeah. like, the fact that it is happening, I guess, still don't Yeah, I guess it. Warner Brothers is in dire straits if they're willing to do this, right? Oh, it's extensive VFX work, rescoring, maybe some ADR. You might as well just reshoot the whole thing. You may as well, but that's a lot more expensive. Coming on HBO Max 2021. 2030, 2035. 2021. It's next year, yeah. Why are we talking about this? I don't know.